Welcome to Texas History Lessons. I'm Michael, and today we are doing Lesson 9 on the Hermanos of the West Texas Trans-Pecos. Now, by way of introduction, I want to share a creation story that I, I found by uh, Humano Joe Acosta Sr., Makoa Day. And I'm just going to quote from him. Try to make it as brief as possible because it's quite long, but I just want to hit the highlights of, of this creation story. And it's something we can compare to the creation story we have from the Coatecons that we saw a few times back. Now, Mr. Acosta begins, Before Jesus came to the Hamanos, the corn mothers ruled. This story is told. Once animals, humans, spirits, all lived below and all spoke one language. The exodus from this subterranean cosmos, where the sun shone all the time, began when beings called Blue Corn Woman and White Corn Maiden sent one of the men to explore the surface of the earth and see if it was fit for habitation. After refusing to go three times upon the fourth request, he emerged through a body of water somewhere in the north and walked north, west, south, and east, moving counterclockwise, Seeing only mist and haze in every direction, he became Posalme, which means fog and mist people. Posalme returned to report that the world above was formless and chaotic, green, unripe, not ready for intelligent beings, not willing to give up so easily. The corn mothers sent their explorers back for another reconnaissance. This time, he was surprised along the way by a pack of wild animals and insects, mountain lions, wolves, coyotes, bears, foxes, vultures, crows, dragonflies, and bees. Because he was afraid, they attacked him. Then, persuaded that he had learned his lesson, they became his friends and confidants. They gave him a bow and arrow and buckskins. They painted his face with stripes and tied feathers in his hair. He returned to his people as the hunt chief, the keeper of the magic bond between hunter and prey. Summoning everyone in the underworld with a fox call, the hunt chief appointed two assistant chiefs, one to rule the people in the summer and one to rule in the winter. These chiefs then sent six pairs of brothers to explore the earth and map the terrain to impose order on the world. The first pair, who were colored black like the cold, headed north. They didn't make it very far because the ground was still too soft, but in the distance they saw a blackest shape, which they named Dark Mountain. And so it was the geography and cartography began. Having named the north, the exploration proceeded counterclockwise. The yellow brothers went west, the red ones south, and the white ones east. Each saw a mountain in the direction they were traveling and gave it a name. After that, the only directions left to investigate were up and down. And so the brothers, who were colored like a rainbow of all colors, were sent upward to the zenith to explore the darkness of space. Instead of a mountain, they saw a large star in the eastern sky. The last pair of brothers, the green ones, explored the nadir of this new universe and saw many plants. Having prepared the upper world for habitation, the people were eager to live in this newly charted land. But first, they had to organize themselves as neatly as they had organized the land between the mountains. It was not an easy task. They made four ill-fated attempts to colonize the land above the water, returning each time to the underworld. And each time, to help with the next expedition, new categories of people were created. The summer and winter clowns to keep the people happy on their journey. The hunting society to keep the people nourished. 
the medicine societies to keep the people well. Finally, they were ready to try the exodus for the final time, dividing themselves into two groups led by the summer chief and the winter chief. They left the underworld. Upon reaching the big river, what we now call the Rio Grande, they divided themselves into tribes, and from these came all the peoples. The Hamanos headed downstream to build villages of adobe, but some cried because they had lost loved ones, so some followed and lived among the buffalo. The summer people proceeded south along the west side of the Rio Grande, the winter people along the east side. After each made 12 stops, forming pueblos like Tapolcolme and Pulique, the ancestors of the Hamano rendezvoused and started a village called Posalme on a hill above the site where the Spanish later named San Francisco. After an epidemic forced them to abandon the village, they moved to the canyons and mesas of the plateau at the edge of the Rio Concho and the flatlands to form the Humano villages, including those that exist today. There are also many villages that don't exist today. It is the old stories that make us Humano. The early Christians tried desperately to suppress these stories by calling our dances and beliefs paganistic, satanic, evil. The spirits that once inhabited the mountains disappeared when the stories ended. The twin peaks once considered sacred by grandparents are now only seen as nearby mountains to climb. But hope exists. So there, here we have a creation story of the Humanos. Uh, people that lived in West Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and Chihuahua, Mexico. And that still live there and from California to Florida. As I've covered in other lessons on the indigenous peoples of Texas and Southwest... A lot of the historical literature says Humano ceased to be in the 1700s, being absorbed by other tribes like Comanches, Apaches, and even assimilating into Hispanic culture. This is all true. But I am also happy to share, like I did with the Coatacons, the Humanos are still here. Uh, to quote Felix Salmeron, who was kind enough to respond to me when I reached out to him, he's the tribal chairman of the Humanos and a Humano historian. He said, there are many versions of the history of the Humanos by many great authors. Unfortunately, the information that they have is the interpretation of the journals of Spaniards and the Catholic missionaries. There is yet to be a document written by an author that actually spoke with the Humano. The Humanos had family ties with Chihuahua through West Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. They were referred to as nomadic people and the only ones that moved across the mass area were, were the Humano hunters and tradesmen. Families remained in the Pueblos villages in Chihuahua, Texas, Arizona, and New Mexico. He continues and says, They say that they were a docile people, and that is not true. They fought and defended their families. They talk about the Humano country. In fact, Humanos or anyone else did not own any land as we believe that once you die, the land remains and the new generations are responsible of taking care of it. There is so much that is not talked about and the culture is one that is lacking. And then I went on and asked him about the historical literature's claim that they had disappeared and he made a very good point. It was a survival mechanism, just like with Karankwas and Coatecons. Being an Indian in 19th century Texas wasn't very safe. He said to me, the reason of our disappearance was due to survival. Look at all the tribes that live today. 
they are living in ruins. The Humanos migrated back to Chihuahua and stayed there for a long time. There were Humano families that remained in New Mexico, Arizona, and West Texas. And if you recall, there were no borders and movement was free. A lot of Humanos still live today in Presidio, Texas and across the United States. Our ancestors were called Mexicans after the Spaniards were defeated and it was acceptable survival tactic. Today, we are still considered Mexicans, Spaniards, Latinos, Hispanics, and we have accepted the term for many years. We are Spanish-speaking Humano natives from the West Texas area. We are working on the Humanos from New Mexico as we have family there, and we are also working on Humanos from Arizona and Chihuahua. I deeply appreciate Mr. Salmeron uh, sending this input to me. It helped me out a lot, and I appreciate the information that the Humano Nation has on their website, which I'll put a link into the show notes for you to check out yourself. Now, this is as good a time as any to say thanks to my podcast host, Age of Radio, and take a brief break, and then we'll get into the meat of the lesson. A few lessons ago, I mentioned the many civilizations that had preceded the tribes that were present at European contact. There was the great Mississippian civilization to the east, the plains culture to the north, the cultures of the south, and these were the most advanced in the Americas, the Maya, the Toltec, the Mexica or Aztecs, and even farther south were the Incas. Great civilizations rose and faded in the area surrounding Texas, but the remnants of their culture survived. And two more cultures that I left off that list were the Mogollon to the southwest and the Pueblo to the west. And whether or not the Homanos are directly physically related to them, there's definitely a cultural relationship of influence that was passed down, as you'll see. Now, just as with the name for the Coatecans, there is a flaw in that Humanos is a name given by the Spaniards to groups of people that might have gone by many different names. In fact, they did go by many different names. Humano is not even a name they ever heard of before. It, but it is also probably kind of funny, um, a more fitting name that the Spaniards ever gave to a group of people because it's probably related to the Spanish word for human which is fitting because most, if not all, uh, indigenous people did have names or at one time referred to themselves as the people, the real people, or the real human beings. As one source says, the Spanish applied the name Humano to a tremendous number of groups scattered over a large and diverse territory, often with very different economies. Humanos have been ascribed to such various places, to bands in the panhandle, even to the Wichita people living as far north as Oklahoma and Kansas. But for this lesson, we're sticking with the people that today consider them their ancestors to be Humanos, and we're going to stick to the geographic location that they hold by focusing on West Texas, the land along the middle Rio Grande from the Big Bend to present-day El Paso that served as their home from the late prehistoric period to today. One source explains that there was no single Humano culture, but several related cultures. They were successful farmers, hunters, and traders. And while some sources do say they were friendly and others say docile, 
Being friendly like the Karakas also could be does not mean that they were not also fierce defenders of their families and lives when force was necessary. They were also some of the very first indigenous horsemen north of Mexico after the Spanish invasion. They lived in several towns or rancherias, growing corn and other foods along the Rio Grande from its confluence with the Conchos River northwest to El Paso. Other hermanos were less sedentary, living in buffalo camps that stretched out to the arid lands west of the Pecos River. They definitely had cultural ties to the great westward Puebloan cultures, and like I said, if not by blood relation, then through influence. To quote W.W. Newcomb in his classic, The Indians of Texas, All in all, Puebloan culture was as advanced and highly developed as any native civilization north of Mexico, the cultures of the southeast possibly accepted. And I might disagree with a little bit of that because um, the what we know about the city of Cahokia up in the near the St. Louis, Missouri area is ex- completely amazing. But we're going to get into that when we get into the Caddo's. To continue with Newcomb. Sometime around AD 1000, there was a rapid expansion of this Puebloan culture, technically called the Hornado branch of the Mogollon. And Mogollon, for other purposes, may also be called Puebloan southward down to the Rio Grande. Humano culture flourished from approximately 1,000 to the early 1700s and then declined rapidly, probably due to the increasing arid climate, which ruined their crops and drove away the buffalo, disease brought by the Europeans, and, again, invasion of the Apaches, just like we saw with the Caracos and the Coatecans. Newcomb again, the land of the Hermanos stretched from the vicinity of El Paso down the Rio Grande Valley as far as the Big Bend region of Texas and a short way into Mexico up the Rio Conchos in Chihuahua. While their permanent villages were in these river valleys, all of Texas south and west of the Pecos may be considered as territory ranged to some extent by Humanos or their nomadic relatives. Climatically, Trans-Pecos, Texas is arid and large sections of it can be classified as desert. The land supports agriculture only where irrigation of one sort or another is possible. When these Indians were first encountered by the Spaniards, their fields and gardens were situated in the valleys, either in places where there was sufficient moisture from the runoff of an arroyo or ephemeral stream to raise crops, or on the floodplain of one of the permanent streams of the region where the chances of good harvest were relatively high. Now, from New Mexico to the Big Bend region of Texas, the Rio Grande flows through a narrow valley flanked by brush and cactus-covered terraces and starkly barren mountains. There were stretches of valley land, generally narrow, but sometimes running for tens of miles along the river, which could be used for riverine or temporal farming. In the valley, too, there were and are many groves, sometimes tangled and matted jungles of willow, cottonwood, cane, and brush. These were useful for building purposes, but it is also unlikely that these areas could have been easily cleared by Stone Age Indians for farming. That's Newcomb's opinion. The Rio Conchos is the only large tributary to enter the Rio Grande through this entire region, and the lower Conchos has essentially the same characteristics as the Rio Grande. The gravelly, dusty uplands and terraces away from the valleys as well as the low mountains of the region could be utilized by the Humanos only for hunting and gathering. 
Now, Cabeza de Vaca, who we've heard about, he traveled a lot. We're going to take a nice long look about his adventures in Texas. He wrote that the country was incredibly populous, while Antonio de Esposo, who visited the cluster of villages at La Junta in 1582 and 1583, he believed they held 10,000 people, just those villages right there, who lived in the flat-roofed houses low and well-arranged into pueblos. By the 1680s, even the Spanish referred to the extended nation of the Humanas, which consisted of more than 10,000 people and was composed of anywhere between 30 and 60 different bands. The main town or rancheria for the Texas Humanos was probably a cluster of villages at La Junta de los Rios, at the confluence of the Rio Grande and the Conchos. They called themselves Otomoacos. Nearby lived another band called the Abriaches. And then together, the two villages are known as the Padaray Bois. The most populous group of Hamanos were the Cahuatues, who lived up the Rio Grande, about midway between La Junta and El Paso. And then there were the Tanpacoas that lived at El Paso, the Paso del Norte. They are also known as another name, Monsos. Davaca said they were the best looking people we saw, the strongest and the most energetic. In 1581, Hernan Gallegos said, The men are very handsome and the women beautiful. They are striped people and very merry. They go about naked. Some records seem to make it seem like the Humanos resembled the Caroncoas quite a bit, being impressively tall and muscular. Men also wore a minimum amount of clothing, often made out of buffalo hide. Women wore shirts, ponchos, and skirts of deerskin and buffalo hide cloaks. And as we've seen with every nation in Texas, they also painted and tattooed stripes on their faces. Women wore their hair very long, but men cut their short up to the middle of their scalp. Then, using paint, they curled the remainder over into what looked like something of a cap. A lock of hair was left at the crown in which they attached feathers. Now, the the towns or rancherias where the humanos gathered, the ones that are the farming humanos, were often very large complexes. Several families would call it home. Apparently, it was not uncommon for families to have to move and when they did other Humano families would move into their dwelling that they'd built remember they did not believe that they owned the land now these complexes consisted of separate pit houses clustered together now I know when you hear Pueblo you're thinking of these large apartment like dwellings the Pueblos well they did not do that. Each house was a separate pit house that the family lived in, but they were clustered close together. They just weren't attached. They were rectangular in shape and about 28 feet to 30 feet in size. The largest shelter that they built could hold up to 20 people. Uh, most of the houses were sunk half below ground level with the half above ground constructed of adobe bricks. And they must have been very sturdy because 
Spanish expeditions reported in the 1580s that Hermanos could stand on top of their homes. The roofs were made from saplings and brush covered with the soil and adobe. The interior walls were plastered and painted with decoration in places. There is a ceremonial pit house that's been excavated in Tapacolme, home of the Pescados near modern-day Redford, Texas. It has on its walls yellow, white, red, and black. Remember the colors of the peoples that we heard about in the creation story. These houses were perfect for the environment that they lived in. They would provide them with cool quarters in the summertime, and the light rainfall of the region did not threaten them very much in any way of causing damage. There was a variation in houses since the other Humano villages upriver may not have been as large or had as many permanent structures. It's reported that some river Humanos lived in houses covered with grass. Inside the houses was a central hearth consisting of a fire pit encircled by stones. They could cook meals there using a large pot or gourds. Humanos used hard gourds very effectively and practiced stone boiling cooking in which they, the cook would fill a gourd with water and use the fire to heat the stones, move the stones into the water until the water began to boil and then they would add their whatever they were cooking into the water. Uh, they also used a sort of plain brown pottery. Their beds were located on the lodge floor around the edges. They would be made from dried grasses that were covered with animal hides. A storage trench, baskets, and rafters were used to keep other items, dried meat, vegetables, clothing, personal possessions. And they often used woven mats or deer skins as floor coverings on the floor. Building a pit house was a communal effort, usually performed in the spring. 20 to 30 family members would loosen the soil with digging sticks, and then they would shovel the dirt into baskets with large flat pieces of wood. The soil dug up would be saved nearby and used to make the adobe for the roof. Tomatoes favored juniper trees for constructing the house's frameworks. They sank the smoothed upright posts about a half meter into the ground near the center of the freshly dug area. Then they stamped the floor flat with sticks on their feet. Flexible willow twigs bound rafters to the posts, but the rafters did not meet in the center in order to allow for a rooftop entrance opening. Horizontal poles lashed between the rafters supported the roof coverings of poles, bark, and soil. A notched ladder with one step missing that only family members would expect was placed in the hole at the top of the building. This helped protect the inhabitants from unwanted invaders. You're climbing down a ladder, you miss a step, oh, you're going to fall. The family would instinctively remember always to hit that step. A second entrance built on the side of the house provided entrance for elders and children. Now these are the buildings of the River Humanos. The Humanos have practiced mostly farming. They also did go hunt buffalo and all kinds of other animals as we'll see. But the other group of Hamanos were the buffalo hunting Hamanos. The ones Gabezo de Vaca called the cow people or the Cibola. And they hunted beyond the Chisos and Davis Mountains on the southernmost plains of West Texas and they would have had mobile dwellings. 
We don't know a lot about Humano's social or political organization. It appears from Spanish records that personal conflict and warfare between the group seems to have been minimal. This in no way should be understood as an implication that they wouldn't fight if need arose. Uh, the towns were governed by chiefs called caciques by the Spanish. And because of the periodic threat of drought that would make their crops wither and make life difficult, elders often arranged marriages with other bands and created trade alliances with other groups during periods of difficulty. The Spaniards reported that the Hermanos of the 16th and 17th centuries had an extraordinarily successful economy, not only through their own hunting and agriculture, but through their trade efforts. I believe it's Donald Chipman, the historian, who said that they were the Venetians of the Plains. Hunting provided buffalo, deer, rabbits, antelope, mountain goats, armadillos, skunks, rabbits, and birds. And, of course, the rivers would provide fish. Those living along the Rio Grande and Conchos rivers and the ancillary streams grew corn, beans, tomatoes, squash, onions, sunflowers, and bottled gourds. They gathered mesquite beans maguey leaves, cactus pears, chilies, garlic, cilantro, and cumin. Salt could also be found in river marshes and lagoons and was a very important source of items that they could trade. And they also built granaries to store their food in. Now their theory is as to why there was a division in Hermanos between the ones that did mostly farming and hunted and the ones that seemed to mostly hunt. There's a theory that there was a periodic droughts of the West sent some river humanos onto the Southern Plains, and here they hunted buffalo afoot and lived in hide shelters. But at some point after all these droughts happening, a few families, they think, must have decided to remain on the Plains, where they prospered by focusing their lifestyle on the buffalo, pretty much adapting the Plains culture of buffalo hunting, but they would also return and trade uh, with their family members to the south. Now, if all of this isn't interesting enough, we get to something that is completely fascinating to me. The Hamano's role as traders. We've talked about in previous lessons about how Texas, while not having any dominant civilization grow up here, was a transitional zone and a network for trade where things from the south were brought up and introduced to the northeast and west of Texas. And this is where we get to that. And it's the Hamanos that their role as traders where it seems especially interesting to me. Texas was a vast center of trade and transition for goods from west, south, and east, and north. And the Humanos continued this tradition well after the Spanish arrived. And the Spanish even utilized them for this. It was a geographically important area. The Humano villages along the Rio Grande were directly on the route between the Spanish and Mexico and the wealthy populous pueblos to the north. And then their plains Humanos stood between the pueblos in the west and the Coatecans, Caroncoas, Tonquas, and Atacapas, the southern migrating Wichitas that were coming down in the 1700s, and the Caddos to the east. They are in the middle of 
this route. And as one writer put it, they were poised to exploit the spider web of exchange networks that connected virtually all people of Texas, and they did a great job in the process. They served as active traders, being the facilitators of trade of food, pottery, and blankets, and salt between groups as far apart as the Caddo's of East Texas and the Pueblos of New Mexico. Devaca claimed that the river Humanos and the buffalo hunting Humanos were not on friendly terms when he visited. He said they were enemies. Nevertheless, they did exchange and trade uh, between the two groups. The hunter Humanos brought buffalo meat and hides to the river villages and traded for corn, beans, bows, and a host of other foods and utensils. Both Humano groups also traded with the Pueblo towns along the upper Pecos and Rio Grande. There, they would acquire cotton blankets and nuggets of turquoise. They were a nation of traders. The buffalo hunting Humanos on the plains and the farming Humanos at La Junta developed interdependent relationship. And I will reiterate that their trade network covered a much larger and wider area than just the Rio Grande and Southern Plains. When Antonio Espejo visited the Humano villages along the Rio Grande in the 1580s, the Humano elders who control exchanges brought him many things made of feathers of different colors and some small cotton mantas striped with blue and white. That an, Another nation that had joined them towards the west brought them those things to barter with them for dressed hides of cows and deer. One of the reasons for their mastery of trade in South Texas, it was a consequence of their seasonal migration patterns. Many indigenous people came to the southern plains to hunt, the Caddo's, Tonkawas, Coatecons did. And the Hamanos, being there, created cl- close relationships with Caddo's and their neighbors, the Tejas Alliance, and actively traded between these tribes and those along the Rio Grande. Their trade routes followed and linked several river bottoms and river systems, including the Pecos, Canadian, Brazos, and the Colorado of Texas. Then came the horse which greatly expanded their reach and when they adopted an equestrian way of life. Indigenous peoples produced commodities such as corn, salt, buffalo meat and hides, pottery bows, arrows, feathers, seashells, projectile points, chunks of flint, river pearls, nuggets of turquoise, and other minerals, even Indian captives. All of these commodities, sad to use that term, makes me... Skin crawl using a word commodity for a captive, uh, using a source that used that term. Um, but to carry on, all of these things made their way into this cross Texas Humano trade, along with such Spanish items as horses, firearms, metalware, beads, cloth, and clothing. Everyone wanted firearms and horses, and the Humanos could supply them and did. When LaSalle visited the Caddo's in the 1600s, he was amazed to see the results of the Humano trade efforts. The Caddo elite possessed Spanish clothing, swords, religious artifacts, and many horses. The Humanos would leave and carry hides and peltries for sale in New Spain. The Humano traders were also serving as Spanish surrogates and promoting friendly relations with the nations of the north. 
the Caddo and Confederacies, and the Wichita, and Spain. And it was the Hermanos who brought news of La Salle's presence in Spanish territory to the Spanish, which led to the new effort in the 1700s to push and try to resettle the area with missions and presidios. Their success was so great that I'm going to quote W.W. Newcomb's writing on the efficiency and effect, efficiency of Hamano trade at length. In the spring, Hamano trade bands fanned out in all directions, west to the Pueblos and the Spanish settlements along the Rio Grande and Upper Pecos, south to the Spanish settlements in northern Mexico and east toward the Coatecans, Caroncoa, and Caddo. For those heading east, one of the first stops was a large trade fair held among the great pecan groves on the Colorado River near present-day Ballinger, Texas. At the 1684 trade fair, Spanish explorer Juan Mendoza reported that attending were Indian traders from Hermanos, Orozco's, Betany Huris, and I'm not going to go into this because there's about 30 Caddos were there. Coatecans were there. There's about 30 different bands there to do, at this big trade fair. To continue the quote, though, all who showed up hoped to exchange their own goods for Hermano horses, guns, and metalware. Horses were probably the most sought after item, and the Hermanos seemed to have a very large supply. By 1691, even the Spanish were impressed with the huge Hermano horse, horse herds and worried about the number of firearms they owned. However, not everyone could afford horses or afford to keep them if they got them. Kowi Takons did not have much to exchange, and even when they did acquire horses, they often died during droughts. Caracuas also wanted horses and were willing to fight the Spanish when refused them, but they too had a difficult time acquiring and keeping them. From the trade fair on the Colorado, eastward-bound Humano trading bands might visit the Coatecans and Caracuas just to see what they might have, Nevertheless, poor nations who could not supply what the Hermanos wanted were usually bypassed in favor of more lucrative customers such as the Caddos in East Texas who exchanged corn, bows, and arrows and other goods for Hermano horses. Hermano traders were also welcome visitors in the Caddo villages. It was during one of their trips to East Texas that the Hermanos discovered LaSalle's French colony on Garcetas Creek that I've mentioned. So we'll move on. After a summer of trading across Texas, when the leaves began to turn, the Humano traders made their way back to La Junta, carrying their profits with them. Humanos seemed poised to become one of the most powerful Indian peoples in Texas. They occupied strategic regions along the Rio Grande and acted as intermediaries between the Spanish in New Mexico and the Indians east of the Pecos. They had developed methods of incorporating outsiders into their societies and so replenished their population and recreated their bands. They were seen as the consummate traders throughout southern Texas and desired by all as economic partners and military allies. But as we've seen with other lessons in history, when there's great success, there's there's always a threat of something that's going to try to come and take that success away. And the main threat that the Hamanos faced was the increased encroachment of the Apaches from the north they wanted both the Hamano hunting grounds and the trade access along the Rio Grande. By 1600, the Apaches already conquered the trade at 
the Pecos Pueblo, and they dominated a wide area east of that side. Around 1660, Apache pressure forced Samanos to increasingly abandon New Mexico. La Junta de los Rios remained their only foothold on the Rio Grande, and they continued their trade following a route along the lower Pecos and Colorado rivers. But by 1690, Apache bands pushed eastward to the upper Colorado and Brazos and hindered this route. The Apaches reigned supreme, and the Hamanos gradually began to have no intact territorial base. They were no longer masters of trade, and according to some history, the remnant groups around La Junta joined forces with the Apaches after 1700 when the Apaches pushed southward along the Rio Grande below El Paso. In addition to these pressures were the Spanish slave-catching expeditions that were sent northward to fill the labor needs of Spanish mines in northern Mexico. All of these events altered traditional humano society. Traditional leadership families went into decline due to death and displacement. Acculturation provided a safety net. Leadership went to Hamano men who could make the best deals with the Spanish, acquire goods and foods, and find protection from the Apaches and other threats. The southward-moving Apaches of the late 17th and early 18th centuries began absorbing members of the Humanos, Coatecans, and other nations. By 1716, Apache bands were living in peace with the Humanos just north of La Junta, and Hamanos often married Apaches and joined them in attacking the missions in San Antonio in 1731. As the 1700s proceeded, the Hamanos increasingly became a part of either Apache or Comanche culture or entered more and more into Spanish society. To again quote Felix Arona Bonilla Salmaron, the historian of the Hamano Indian Nation, a native of Colorado City, Texas, and a retired U.S. Marine and tribal chairman of the Humano Nation of Texas. Humanos are well and alive and have families related across Florida, Tennessee, Texas, New Mexico, and California, just to name a few. There are more stories to tell about the Humanos as they moved from an Uto Aztec culture to a Christian culture with baptisms and acceptance of the seven sacraments of the church. Today, much credit is given to the Apache Humanos, the Comanche Humanos, and the Lapans, as well as the Tiguas. The true fact is that the Humanos still are a solid Humano Indian nation of West Texas, and the culture and heritage remains the same. On May the 15th, 2019, the Texas House of Representatives passed House Resolution Number 1565, which says in part, Whereas, with a proud heritage that spans many centuries, the Humano Indians of Texas have been a vital part of the history of the Lone Star State, and whereas the Humano were living in parts of present-day Texas when Europeans first arrived in the area, and they may have encountered the Spanish explorer Cabeza de Vaca in 1535 near the site now occupied by the city of Presidio, they were first identified as Humano in 1582 by another explorer, Antonio de Espejo, and whereas, in this area, the Hamano were a semi-nomadic people who hunted buffalo farms and served as salt traders following the Colorado River to where it joins the Concho River. Early on, they adopted the use of horse, and some Humano were associated with Pueblo villages. Their original territory stretched from what is now the Chihuahua region of New Mexico through West Texas and into New Mexico. 
And then they include this little bit, whereas between 1621 and 1631, a Catholic nun named Sor Maria de Jesus de Agreda, also known as the Lady in Blue, is said to have appeared to the Mono and spoken to them in their native language, beginning their conversion to Christianity. In recent years, Humanos have played an important role in the effort of the Catholic Church to canonize Sor Maria. The Humano endured many hardships over the centuries, including warfare with rival Native American groups and non-Native settlers and the spread of infectious disease. And during the 1700s, the Humano began to disappear from the historical record as a distinct people, and it is thought that some members of the tribe were absorbed into other groups. They became a less prevalent in Texas during the turbulent period that stretched into the 1800s. But after 1875, Humanos began to return to their traditional homeland, including such Texas locations as Candelaria, Valentine, Presidio, and Balmoria. In recent years, many Humano families have begun to reclaim their heritage, and at present, there are more than 5,000 people who can claim descent from these ancient peoples. Humanos have served in the United States military in every war since the Civil War, and they continue to be active and vital members of the communities. On May 22, 2016, the Council of the Humano Indian Nation of Texas was established under the leadership of Chair Felix Bonilla Salmaron. And, like I said, in 2019, the House passed this resolution to honor their rich legacy as being a part of Texas history and for continuing to be a part of it, even though we didn't always necessarily know they were here. I want to close by repeating something Mr. Salmaron said to me and was kind of to share with me. The reason for our disappearance was due to survival. Look at all the tribes that live today. They were living in ruins. The Hermanos migrated back to Chihuahua and stayed there for a long time. There were Hermano families that remained in New Mexico, Arizona, West Texas. And if you recall, there were no borders. The movement was free. A lot of Hermanos still live today in Presidio and across the USA. We are the Spanish-speaking Hermano relatives from West Texas area. We are working on Hermanos from New Mexico, and as we have family there, and we're also working on the Hermanos from Arizona and Chihuahua. I deeply appreciate Mr. Salmaron's input and the information available on the Humano Nation website. So thanks to them for helping out with this episode to make it as complete as possible. I think it would have been a disservice to the Humano heritage and culture had I not got to include this information. And if you think I missed some things, then you're correct. In the future, we're going to have an episode where we learn about a Catholic nun named Sor Maria de Jesus of Agreda, also known as Lady in Blue, who is said to have appeared to the Humano and started their process to conversion to Christianity. That story is a big one. It's involved in the whole mission establishment period, and it deserves an episode, and we'll get that. And remember, this lesson is just an introduction to the Humano Nation. We're going to be learning more about them in the future when we focus on different events happening in the future of Texas. So thanks for listening. As always, you can reach out and give me your feedback on the show at an email by texashistorylessons at gmail.com. Uh, on Twitter, we're at Texas History L, capital T E X A S, capital H I S T O R Y, capital L. Uh, there is a Facebook group with over 60 members now, Texas History Lessons. 
open to everyone. Keep it clean. Share stuff that you that you love about history. I just want to uh, uh, create it to to where we can uh, get together and just sh- share things that we are interested in and learn as we as we do so. I want you to please go visit humanonation.com. There are links in the show notes. Um, don't forget my friends from San Antonio era, texastejano.com. Check them out. They're working on some episodes and some content to provide uh, about Tejano heritage. Uh, I have a website now, texashistorylessons.com, all lowercase, and I'm working on it. I'm going to have podcast recommendations. Um, I'm going to be linking to other history podcasts. I'm going to be linking to podcasts that aren't history related because I know that sometimes you just want something different. I'm going to be making a list of books that I've used and recommend for on there. I've started. It's very small at the moment. It will grow quite a bit in the near future. And uh, there's going to be other things I'm going to be adding into their show notes and things like that. With that being said, I do have a Patreon set up, Texas History Lessons. And I want to thank my two patrons, Jay and Ron, because their help and support of the show and positive feedback has always been so much of great encouragement to me. And because of them, them alone, I am able to have this website, which I promise I'm going to make as good as I possibly can to make it uh, an extension of the show for really to go and find links to other things that will be of use to you that being said next time we'll either have a bonus episode on something that pops up or we're going to be looking at the Tonkawas yeah we're getting close to the Caddo's and then we're going to start getting closer to the arrival of the Spanish people into the western hemisphere thanks for listening as always adios adios